Hi, my name's Luke Bache, and welcome to Movers, Shakers, and Social Changes. In this podcast, I speak to people who have had a profound impact on many people's lives, including my own. These are people who I consider pioneers in their respective fields and who I truly believe are stepping into this new story of interconnectivity, compassion, and presence. Welcome to today's episode. As always, I'm really excited. And today I talked to Matthias Desmet, who's a professor of psychology at Ghent University in Belgium, specializing in mass crowd formation, mass hypnosis and totalitarianism, which rather unfortunately are all things that I think need to be looked at in the current global climate. His, his work and his talks over the last kind of 18 months have really highlighted a lot for me and gave me clarity about how groups form, what are the necessary conditions that are needed for mass formation and how mass formation can really implement a kind of totalitarian regime. And the fact we almost had the perfect storm before the the COVID narrative emerged. So I hope you enjoy and take as much out of this as I did. Thank you. The function of a narrative is not at all to be correct or something or to fight a virus. It's to to provide, to, 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 to establish a new social bond and to lead to this mental intoxication, which is very comparable to hypnosis. And then just like hypnosis, once people are into the process of mass formation, the only thing that they really see, both at the cognitive level and at the emotional level, is what is indicated by the narrative. All the rest is neglected. Okay, welcome, Matthias. Um, I thought I'd set the context to start. So we were speaking a little bit offline and you actually helped me set this. So I was saying that the kind of last two years, uh, which I'm shocked in saying that it's been that long, I've gone through different stages, maybe shock, um, confusion, um feeling very isolated uh angry at what i've perceived is going on um and now i'm feeling a little bit more optimistic and people like yourself have actually helped that both understanding and optimism come come through so i thought we could kind of start at the beginning pretty much two years ago as um, I know not only you're a professor of clinical psychology at Ghent, but you also have a master's in statistics. So um, yeah, am I right in saying kind of when this first, this COVID era first kind of began and the narrative happened, um, you started noticing that the narrative wasn't matching the statistics. Is that right? Yes, that's right. To be honest, from the beginning of the crisis, um, I, in one way or another, noticed that I that I was not really scared of the virus. Uh, from the beginning of the crisis, I was actually uh, I felt more reluctant of the of the the social dynamics that were emerging, and uh, that was my my primary object of anxiety. Uh, always has been uh, the social dynamics uh, and not. Uh, uh, the virus itself, and uh, so I, I want to just to yeah, mine too. Mine. Inform you about this. I think I think it's more honest if I, if I mentioned that. I'm but indeed, too. yes. So I I started uh, in the first place to take the perspectives of a the, the perspective of a statistician actually. So I, I studied the numbers and the figures and the statistics uh, on the mortality rates of the virus, the the infection fatality rate. Uh, the case fatality rate um, uh, and um, and I also studied the way in which um, uh, the, the corona victims were counted, the number of contaminations were counted, the hospitalizations were counted and so on 
I also studied the mathematical models a little bit uh, on which uh, the corona measures worldwide were based. And um, uh, from the beginning, actually, I think together with, with some other statisticians, um, I, uh, I had a feeling that uh, there was something wrong. And I had the, 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 the feeling that uh, the models used uh, uh, overrated or overestimated uh, the dangerousness of the virus, uh, for instance, the mortality rates. And um, uh, by the end of May 2020, uh, in my opinion, and uh, uh, I, I had a feeling that uh, it was proven beyond doubt, actually, that the initial models um, uh, actually uh, dramatically overestimated uh, the mortality of the virus. If, for instance, uh, the initial models of Imperial College, which were the most influential worldwide, I think, uh, predicted that uh, uh, by the end of May 2020, uh, about uh, 80,000 people would die in Sweden if the country would not go into lockdown. And um, uh, Sweden did not go into lockdown. And in the end, by the end of May 2020, about 6,000 people died, which is 15 times less than the predicted uh, 80,000 uh, people or, or, or 13 times less. And um, uh, uh, strangely enough, uh, while the corona measures and the, 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 uh, the strategy used to deal with the coronavirus um, more or less presented itself as a as a strategy that was um, based on hard science or on on uh, on mathematical modeling and on the statistical monitoring of uh, of the of the pandemic. Uh, strangely enough, uh, the strategy uh, was not corrected once it was proven that uh, the models were wrong. So if if the strategy would be really based on uh, the mathematical models and uh, it's clear at a certain moment that the initial models uh, were wrong and had to be corrected dramatically. Uh, you would expect that uh, that also the strategy or the measures uh, would uh, be changed. And that would be just only logical. But that didn't happen at all, actually. Uh, the world continued to, to behave and to react, to respond to the virus uh, in exactly the same way as before, as if we were dealing uh, with, a, with a real uh, killer virus. And um, there are other things as well that I noticed in the first months of the crisis. For instance, um, uh, at any moment, never uh, the, the number of the, 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 the damage that could be caused by the, by the virus was balanced off with the, the, the collateral damage of the measures. So you would expect actually that the first thing that will be considered is whether the measures taken will not cause more damage than the virus can cause, of course. And the remedy should not be worse than the disease. Um, but um, we never ever uh, saw a mathematical model, even not one mathematical model, in which both uh, the number of victims uh, the virus could claim in the worst case scenario uh, was contrasted with the number of victims uh, the measures, for instance, the lockdowns uh, could make. And, and actually, from the, from the first weeks of the crisis, the United Nations, among other institutions, uh, warned us that uh, the number of children um, uh, dying from hunger caused by the lockdowns in developing countries would probably be higher than the number of victims the virus could claim, even if no measures were taken at all, which put things in a very strange perspective, which shows that in one way or another, uh, the field of attention, the focus of the entire society was focused, only contained the victims that could be claimed by the virus. And it was as if all the rest was neglected 
or as if all the rest, all the other damage, didn't really have an emotional or even a cognitive impact, a mental impact. And by the end of 2020, I really changed perspectives from the more statistical point of view to the psychological point of view. I wanted to understand how it was possible that uh, an entire society or an entire population uh, neglected such a large part of reality. And um, it took me a few months and to, 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 to really um, uh, have the feeling that I could really nail it down, like that I could really understand what mechanism was at work. And when I look back, I'm always surprised that it took me uh, so so long because I had been lecturing about this psychological process for, for, a, for a few years before. Uh, so uh, for a few years already at that moment. And, and still it took me a few months to, to, to really suddenly realize, like, look, what's going on here in our society is a, is a large uh, scale process of mass formation. And um, uh, mass formation is actually a typical kind of group formation, um, which occurs when uh, specific uh, conditions are met in society, when specific conditions are, are fulfilled. And um, these conditions are the following. When a population uh, or uh, uh, when many people in a society experience a lack of social bond, when they feel socially isolated, socially disconnected, uh, and they uh, experience a lot of a lack of meaning making and a lot of free floating anxiety and a lot of free floating um, uh, aggression and, uh, and frustration, then a population is susceptible for mass formation. So I will, I will come again. I will repeat it. So first, the most crucial condition that must be fulfilled is the lack of social bond. So people must feel disconnected. When they feel disconnected, then usually people will feel a lack of meaning-making in life because human beings or social beings, they feel like their life is senseless or meaningless uh, when they are not connected to each other. So the one is connected to the other. So lack of social bond, lack of meaning-making and sense-making. And then you have this third condition, a lack of free-floating anxiety and psychological discontent in general. That means a lack of anxiety that people cannot connect to representation. So if you're scared of um, something threatening, a lion, something dangerous, I don't know, then your anxiety, you know what you're scared of. Your anxiety is connected to a mental representation. But when people feel socially disconnected, they cannot attribute their anxiety to a mental representation. So they are filled with a kind of psychological discontent, anxiety, that they cannot connect to something. And then the fourth factor, because people feel um, uh, disconnected, a lack of sense-making, a lot of free-floating anxiety, they start to become frustrated and aggressive. But as they don't know why they are scared, uh, they don't have an object to focus their aggression and their frustration on. So, and these four conditions are very important. And we, you could, we could clearly see that just before the Corona crisis, these four conditions were met. For instance, in a country, in a country such as Belgium, uh, every year people used 300 million doses of antidepressants, 300 million doses of antidepressants. And then, and then there are, of course, an anxiolytica, antipsychotica, and so on. There are a lot of other psychopharmaceuticals. But 300 million doses of antidepressants in a population of about 11 million people. Uh, other examples, of, uh, there was a pandemic of, of, of burnouts. There was... Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the book uh, Bullshit Jobs of Graeber, uh, who described that 
about 50% of the people uh, 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 experience their jobs as completely meaningless. I could go on for a while, but it was clear that just before the corona crisis, these four crucial conditions uh, uh, for mass formation were met. Then what happens in such a situation is that if a narrative, a story, is um, presented, disseminated through the mass media, which indicates an object of anxiety and which presents, which delivers a strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, mm -hmm. then there is a good chance that all this free-floating attention attaches to this object of anxiety and that there is a huge willingness in the population to participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, even if the strategy is rather absurd or disproportionate. What happens is the following. First, all this free-floating attention attaches to a mental representation of an object of anxiety, for instance, a virus. And people feel that this is in one way or another uh, a progress because uh, they now are able to control their anxiety. They know what they are scared of and they can control the object of anxiety by participating in the strategy. And then something typical happens. If many people start to participate in this strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, a new kind of social bond emerges. People feel connected in the heroic battle against the object of anxiety. And at the same time, they experience a rudimentary, a new kind of meaning making in life. Life is meaningful again mm. because they know, they, 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 they fight against the object of anxiety. So these four conditions are solved in a symptomatic way. Uh, and uh, people switch as social beings. They switch from a, a state of uh, social isolation, social atomization, as Hannah Arendt calls it. They switch from this highly aversive mental state in one time to the opposite. And no matter how absurd uh, the narrative becomes, as because the narrative was utterly absurd in many respects and blatantly wrong, but no matter how absurd it is, people will continue to go along with it. They will continue to believe in it because what they want is not a correct narrative. Unconsciously, they are looking for this new social connection, this new social bond, this new solidarity. That's why people go along with the narrative, meaning that no matter how absurd it is, it won't make a difference. It even, even on the contrary, the measures, the corona measures, for instance, they have the function of a ritual, a ritual that connects a certain group with each other, a ritual that connects people to each other. And rituals are better suited, or behaviors are better uh, as, a, as a ritual. They become more suited to become a ritual, the more absurd they are. So, because an absurd behavior has no other function than establishing this connection. And that's why, even, even if the narrative becomes more absurd than it is now, it will, uh, it will, uh, 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 people will continue to go along with it. They will, they will not stop believing in the narrative, not at all. That's, that's a strange thing. And that's what's so, so fascinating at the same time. And what, 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 what's so strange, uh, what looks so strange, because many people who are not into this process of mass formation, they really wonder. They, they almost cannot believe what they see because the narrative is so absurd and people continue to believe in it. And, but, but, but that's not, 
they, they, they don't, in that way, they, they, they neglect that the function of a narrative is not at all to be correct or something or to fight a virus. It's to, to provide, to, 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 to establish a new social bond and to lead to this mental intoxication, which is very comparable to hypnosis. And then just like hypnosis, once people are into the process of mass formation, the only thing that they really see both at the cognitive level and at the emotional level is what is indicated by the narrative. All the rest is neglected. And that's exactly the same with hypnosis. The hypnotist focuses the attention on one specific aspect of reality and all the rest is neglected. All the rest cannot be seen anymore to this extent that if you use a basic, simple hypnotic procedure and you focus the attention of someone on one specific aspect of reality, you can cut into the person's flesh. He will not notice it. And that's what happens all the time in hospitals when they use um, hypnosis as a, a way to... Uh, 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 during uh, during surgical operations, um, when someone is allergic to a, to a chemical anesthesia, for instance, yeah, that's what happens, and that's exactly the same in 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 in, in, in mass formation, and that's why uh, it's clear that people are losing everything. They're losing their freedom. They are losing their wealth. They are losing their psychological health, and so on. They are losing everything that that, that under normal conditions is important to them, but they don't notice it. It's they, 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 they act as if they don't notice it. And this, when the process of mass formation would stop, people would literally wake up and they would realize what they lost. And the first thing they do in this case is that they will blame and potentially kill uh, their leaders. <laughs> That's I mean, what happens. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, what, what's alive in me hearing you say that? I feel like one, the capitalist narrative that we're all kind of smothered in has provided a perfect storm for this, right? We live usually in houses where we don't know our neighbors. We're kind of socially disconnected. Mm. Um, we're basically rushed, stressed all the time about everything, about money, rent, food, everything, right? So you have this, we're disconnected from each other, from nature. If I live, whenever I've lived in a city, I feel anxious constantly. And like you said, I can't really pinpoint it to anything. It's almost everything, right? It's everything about that existence makes me feel anxious, being away from nature, not really having time to actually sit down with friends, et cetera, et cetera. And so this perfect storm has then cultivated in this synced narrative that the mainstream media globally are all saying exactly the same things, right? Solidarity, do this, do that. And so there's a kind of tragic irony that people have in their desire to probably connect, they've connected over this thing that is almost detrimental on so many levels, right? Their mental health, financial health. Um, and so now we're in this, you know, yeah, I guess, you know, and then education environment that we've been raised probably not to question authority in general, sit still, listen to an expert, again, has been been kind of played out in this ritualistic approach of experts in quoted commas telling us what to do and we're not questioning it because we're used to that so when, when you're explaining these things this isn't the first time this has happened either right you're you're looking at past past um examples of this in in russia and in nazi germany Yes, of course. Yes, the process of mass formation um, exists already as long as humanity exists for thousands of years. Uh, but um, during the last two centuries, it became increasingly strong and the impact on, on, on society became increasingly um, uh, powerful. 
And um, at the end of the 19th century, Gustave Le Bon, one of the major scholars on, uh, on mass formation, one of the major authors on mass formation, warned us already that uh, if uh, things would continue uh, as they did, um, uh, the masses would become that strong that they would uh, uh, take control uh, of society. And that was exactly what happened in the second, in the first half of the 20th century, in Nazi Germany and in um, in um, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, a totally so the, the totally new um, uh, kind of state emerged, the totalitarian state, in which 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 is radically different from classical dictatorships. It was the first time that uh, this type of state uh, emerged, uh, and uh, and then what was characteristic of, of this totalitarian state was actually that it was based on uh, mass formation. Uh, classical dictatorships are not based on mass formation. They are based on uh, fear in the population for a small and powerful uh, group of people. And that's what that is a psychological mechanism of a, of a classical dictatorship. But a totalitarian state is based on the process of mass formation, meaning that first uh, the population uh, uh, becomes convinced uh, uh, or, or is grasped in a, in, in a narrative, for instance, propaganda that, usually, though, right? Which we've been no, yeah. no, not not in the first, not in the beginning. It's not, not through propaganda. It's like usually, it's like a narrative that spreads in the population, such as a certain race theories, or uh, in the in the in, in Nazi Germany, in Germany, or uh, or uh, 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 historical materialism. In, uh, in the Soviet Union. And then once a certain narrative uh, uh, becomes very powerful in the population, uh, then uh, uh, a totalitarian regime starts to take advantage of this narrative and uses it to manipulate the population through propaganda, indoctrination, uh, 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 sometimes terror. Um, uh, yes, but that happened uh, before. So, and then it was exactly the same process, of course. Uh, as you said, uh, like the process of um, uh, industrialization, mechanization, and the rationalization of society had led up to more and more uh, socially isolated people, uh, to more and more uh, free-floating anxiety in the in the population. And in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, uh, free the anxiety and uh, the, the psychological discontent and the social isolation reached really high levels. And then you saw the emergence of the of the of the large. Uh, scale uh, mass formation that uh, that led to uh, to the totalitarian regimes uh, of the first half of the 20th century. So, but the process was exactly the same. There was a lot of free-floating attention, a lot of anger and frustration, uh, lack of social bond, lack of meaning making, and then suddenly uh, um, a narrative pops up in society which says that it's uh, all the fault of uh, aristocracy and 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 the Soviet Union or of the Jews or the Gypsies. Uh, in, in Nazi Germany, and uh, all this anxiety attaches to this object, and suddenly uh, certain people realize, or they just do it, I don't know, that, that they use that narrative uh, um, to, 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 to manipulate the population. And usually, uh, they really believe themselves very much. The leaders usually believe themselves very much in the ideology from which the narrative emerges. And so they usually don't really believe the narrative, but they do believe that the ideology, for instance, the race theories in Nazi Germany or historical materialism in, um, in the Soviet Union, uh, usually the leaders are really absorbed by this ideology and they really uh, are convinced uh, that it is the only way to save the world. <laughs> um, uh, and and I, think, I think in our times now, and uh, I think this more fundamental ideology that is uh, uh, at work here is transhumanism, the idea that uh, the, only we, the only way to solve the, the problems we are confronted with is uh, by, uh, by uh, transhumanism, by uh, the technological, uh, highly controlled uh, techno society. Uh, I, think, I think that's the, the basic ideology that is at work here. But, um, well, yes, indeed, this has happened a few times before in history, yes, but never on at this scale, actually, because in Nazi Germany, yeah, it was the, 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 the mass formation was limited to 
Germany, although that's not really true. It's also spread in other uh, European countries. Uh, but um, uh, and also in the Soviet Union, well, the, the totalitarian regime uh, um, uh, was limited to a certain territory. But now we see a worldwide phenomenon of mass formation, um, uh, which is also different from the mass formations of, a, of the 20th century. Uh, Hannah Arendt, if you, I don't know if you know Hannah Arendt, she's a Jewish-German philosopher who wrote uh, a lot about uh, totalitarianism. She wrote this wonderful book, The Origins of uh, Totalitarianism. Uh, and uh, she warned us already in 1953 that um, after the fall of the Nazi regime and, uh, and uh, the decline of uh, Stalinism and the Soviet Union, uh, totalitarianism would not stop. She said, sooner or later, and probably not very much later, we will be confronted with um, uh, a new kind of uh, totalitarianism. She said, this might very well be a, a worldwide uh, totalitarian system uh, that is not uh, uh, of which the leaders are not mob leaders, such as Stalin uh, and Hitler, but rather uh, dull uh, technocrats and and, bureau and bureaucrats. And so it's very striking that she yeah. she she, cool, she predicted yeah. this in uh, in the in the f in uh, around 1953 already. Uh, uh, but she did. <laughs> I'm kind of curious that a lot of these things are, yeah, tragically pushing us. We spoke a little bit about this when we just chatted offline at the start, are tragically pushing us to have to question everything, to question our education, to question our food supply, to question our government, to question, yes, our spiritual, our spiritual life. Because as you're clearly saying, if we're living in small communities in nature with strong social bonds, this couldn't happen. No, no, no. The the the, yeah, the the lack of connection between people and uh, the the lack of connection with uh, our natural environment is one of the is the most fundamental uh, precondition for for mass formation. That's true. Yes, definitely. Um, yes, there are. Like, I'm writing a book at this moment, the psychology of totalitarianism, and I, I describe in the first five chapters or about this the way in which these four conditions uh, emerged uh, throughout the last four or five centuries. And uh, you see that uh, uh, while uh, the, 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 the world was uh, rationalized and uh, industrialized uh, and became more technological, uh, at the same pace, you saw how the um, phenomenon of mass formation became increasingly strong. And it's, it, 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 was, it happened at exactly the same pace, parallel, that, that were two parallel processes until it reached such a strength uh, that um, uh, it took control over uh, the entire state apparatus and, uh, and the first totalitarian states uh, emerged. Um, yes, but as you said, at the same time, uh, it, this, this, process, this process puts us in motion. Uh, we are forced to, uh, to question everything we believed in before, uh, and we are forced to start to think about uh, uh, what the possible solutions could be. Um, uh, yeah. Yes. What gives you optimism, Matthias? What, what gives you optimism right now? I'm quite optimistic because I think that this process will give birth to uh, uh, new principles uh, of living together. Uh, first, I, I, I believe that uh, in the next years, maybe the next few years, uh, things will get increasingly worse. I think it will be a very difficult time with a lot of segregation in which uh, the group of people who refuse to go along with the narrative and who refuse to, um, to, uh, yeah, to, to follow uh, mainstream developments uh, in society, uh, will be marginalized, uh, will be pushed outside of regular uh, society. I do believe so. So it won't be easy. It will be difficult, I think. But uh, at the same time, uh, as we said, it, it, it will 
until put is in motion, we will be forced to uh, find solutions to our problems. Uh, I, and I truly believe that uh, uh, there is a lot of meaning in all this uh, and that we uh, have to uh, to, uh, to uh, accept the challenge and uh, that it will bring us uh, where we maybe have to be. Um, uh, yeah. So, but if you look at the process of mass formation, then you can always, that's very interesting, I think, you can always discern three groups. Actually, it might be surprising, but uh, only about 30% of the people, uh, usually, only about 30% of the people uh, is really grasped, seized by the phenomenon of mass formation. Uh, and then there is an additional, those people are no, really hypnotized, you could say. And then there is an additional 40% who uh, is not hypnotized, who, who knows that there is something wrong with the narrative, but who prefers not to go against the current. So they prefer not to go against uh, the crowd and to, um, to, uh, to go along with, uh, with, the, with, the, with the mainstream narrative, but not because they really believe in it. And then there is a third group, also about 30% about usually, who is not hypnotized and who tries to speak out, who tries to, to, uh, to object and, to, and, to, and to, um, uh, to go against the crowd, to go against the current. Uh, but that group usually is very heterogeneous. And it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, that's why it does not have the same impact as the crowd itself, because there's this third group that's something very striking that was observed time and time again, in the historical examples of, uh, of mass formation. This third group it, it, it is, is, is uh, formed of people of all kinds of political uh, orientations, of all kinds of socioeconomic status. It's, it's, it's very difficult. They are, it's a really a very heterogeneous group. It comes from all directions, from all kinds of subcultures and groups. Mm. Um, uh, and that's why it, 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 it's, it, it's, it's always, it does not have the same, it does not speak with one voice. And uh, consequently, it does not have the same impact as the 30% of people who are into the crowd. So uh, actually, uh, this process of mass formation or this crisis, the real crisis, uh, which is not a crisis uh, of, of a virus, I think, of or, or it's, it's it's a psychological and indeed you could say even a spiritual crisis, mm -hmm. uh, crisis at the level of our uh, view on man and the world, of our the way in which we try to make meaning in this life. Um, uh, the real crisis will be solved as soon as this group, this third group, uh, really finds a way. Uh, uh, to unify, uh, 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 but of course, uh, the challenge will be to to become a group without becoming a mass, <laughs> because otherwise, yeah, we, it, it it would be a process of mass formation itself. Uh, um, That's interesting to become a group, I guess, while still seeing the humanity of people who don't agree with them, right? Because I guess if you're in the hypnosis it's hard to hear someone else and see them as a, a fellow human with needs, I guess. Yes, yes, that's exactly one of the problems. People who uh, are into a process of mass formation dehumanize everybody who, uh, who refuses to belong to the mass. That's something very typical. Uh, Gustave Le Bon called it the typical intolerance of uh, the crowd mm -hmm. for dissonant voices. Uh, uh, and that's... In a certain way, perfectly logical, of course, because um, people who are in a process of mass formation uh, fear that if they hear these dissonant voices, that they will wake up and that they will be confronted again uh, with uh, all these, these four initial conditions, the lack of meaning making, the lack of social bond, the free-floating uh, anxiety and all the the the, um, uh, the frustration and aggression, and that's why they don't want to wake up, and that's why they become often become angry uh, when they when they hear someone who uh, who claims that uh, the, the, the 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 mainstream narrative is wrong. 
Uh, at the same time, it's very important that people who are not in the process of mass formation continue to speak out because that's also something that Gustave Le Bon describes already. Uh, you, it's very hard to to uh, uh, to wake to stop the process of mass formation and to make someone wake up who is in the process of mass formation. It's very hard, but if other people continue to speak out, um, uh, then the process of the hypnosis will become less deep, or it will not become as deep as uh, when the other voices would mute. And so. Uh, it's extremely important that people continue to speak. I think that's the most important advice that I can give and now is that we have to continue to speak out. It's extremely important. Uh, um, uh, and that's exactly what went wrong in Nazi Germany and in, uh, in the Soviet Union. At a certain moment, uh, around 1930 in the Soviet Union and around uh, 1935 in Nazi Germany, the opposition was silenced. And... Um, uh, at that moment, uh, the mass formation starts to commit the mass or the crowd and its leaders, of course, uh, starts to commit uh, uh, atrocities. That's very typical for the masses. Uh, they start to, to channel all this frustration and aggression that existed already before the mass formation. Uh, they start to channel it uh, first to the people who, don't, who do not, uh, who are not into the process of mass formation, but later on, once the opposition um, uh, is liquidated or silenced or no matter what, uh, uh, the, the, the totalitarian state or, or the crowd uh, becomes uh, a monster that divorces its own children. That's what Hannah Arendt says. And so she says that as soon as the uh, voice of the opposition dies down, as soon as it is silenced, um, uh, the the the, the, the crowd and the totalitarian state becomes a monster that divorces its own children. And Hannah Arendt does not explain why that happens, but from a psychological point of view, you can perfectly understand it. Um, uh, because um, uh, uh, mass formation uh, uh, mass formation emerges uh, as, a, as, a, as a way to, 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 uh, to deal with anxiety. And if the anxiety would stop then the mass formation would end. And uh, uh, that's what totalitarian leaders intuitively understand very well. They have to continue to present or to indicate objects of, objects of anxiety time and time again that have to be destroyed. And if the enemies are destroyed, then the totalitarian system just starts to indicate objects of anxiety among its own people, among, among its own children, and to destroy it. And that's what happened around 1930, for instance, in, in the Soviet Union. Stalin liquidated millions and millions of people who were not enemies of the Communist Party at all. He even liquidated 50% of his own Communist Party members, of the leaders of the party members, just like that. Because he felt that he always had to and that's something that was described by Orwell, George Orwell, very well in his book, 1984, how the state, time and time again, made sure that people remained in a state of anxiety. Yeah. Because without anxiety, there is no mass formation. And, without, and, and, and people, the masses would wake up. And the first thing they would do is uh, destroy their leaders. A totalitarian state always destroys itself. So that's something that was described by Hannah Arendt. It's, 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 so it's in some a totalitarian state and the process of mass formation is intrinsically self-destructive. Okay. So that's, that's uh, and, and the one totalitarian system lasts longer than the other, but there is a good chance that this one will not last too long and because it will be very self-destructive in a very, uh, uh, uh in a very early stage already, I think. But indeed, that's something, um, actually, the, the, the group who doesn't want to participate or who doesn't want to go along with the narrative, it will just have to survive for a few, for a certain time, outside of mainstream society and wait until the system destroys itself. And that will happen, definitely. Yeah, well, it's happening, I I'm sure. Yeah. 
So it is, it is pretty clear that we're standing at what I believe is a threshold moment, both collectively and individually. And th a threshold usually refers to a strip of wood at the bottom of a door, wood or stone. And when we cross over a threshold, it is an initiatory moment of stepping into something new. And so right now, I believe we are collectively betwixt and between stories, the old story of capitalism, materialism, growth at all costs, all these kind of stories that I personally find, you know, survival of the fittest, really unhealthy, have, have kind of guided us in how to live when we wake up in the morning to know who we are, to define our purpose. And this story, I think, is clearly falling apart, no matter if a new prime minister or president or political party comes in, whether you've noticed or not. For me, it just seems like nothing really changes, no matter how much money is printed. Life seems to be getting faster and faster. There's more stress, more mental health issues. Costs are going up. Nature's kind of getting decimated at ever-quickening rates. And so when we come to a threshold moment, it is an initiation. And as the author, Francis Weller, comments, initiations are not optional. Initiations are not optional. We don't choose a lot of our initiation moments, you know, if we lose a job, if a relationship ends, if someone we love and care for dies, or right now this, this whole COVID thing we didn't choose it but wisdom traditions if we look at them knew the importance of facing initiations so they built initiation rituals into their culture as they knew life is filled with them you know you have transitions from childhood to teens teens to adulthood adulthoods to elders and so for example in the Maasai tribe their initiation for boys to turn into men. They would cover themselves in ash before they went off into the wilderness for a month or months, and their families would ignore them if they still saw them, just in that acknowledgement that person no longer exists. And why the, while the boys went away, the families held a funeral, and the boys, you know, met extremely challenging circumstances in nature. And when they came back, they were welcomed with new names, a new role um, to help this transition. And where are these in our culture, really? We've, we've lost them. And this is so important, these particular transitions, you know, especially into adulthood, because we move from me, which is childhood, adolescence, me, to we when we go into adulthood how can i regenerate how can i replenish how can i share my gift and this is the important thing with initiations they weren't about self-growth they were about how the participants can serve the community and share their medicine and so if we look at joseph campbell's work and mythology he talks a lot about the hero or heroine's journey and on the heroine or hero's journey, the, the individual is faced with a challenge. They're often unhappy with something in society, their culture. And so they go off on a cycle of going and returning. And when they go, they usually face trials and tribulations to see if they have the character to, to meet this. And ultimately, after they faced themselves, they discover their gift that is within and they can stay in the realm or they can come back and share their gift with the, with the community. So if we look at Joseph Campbell's quote, furthermore, we have not even to risk the adventure alone. For the heroes of all time, heroes or heroines of all time have gone before us. The labyrinth is thoroughly known. We have only to follow the thread of the hero path and where we had thought to find an abomination, we shall find a God. And where we had thought to slay another, we shall slay ourselves. Where we had thought to travel outward, we will come to the center of our own existence. And where we had thought to be alone, we will be with all the world. 
And so, you know, as we're between stories, if we look to the old stories, it's all about turning inwards because that is still the same. We still have the same inward self, the same kind of inner divinity. And as, as you said, Matthias, if the anxiety stops, the mass formation stops. So I think part of this initiation is to question what, what gives us joy collectively, what gives you joy individually, what feeds you, what, what is your medicine? You know, for me, it's, a, it's being around people, it's being in nature, it's dancing, it's singing, it's laughing, it's looking into someone's eyes and that just moment where we know we share something together. It's having choice, it's having choice of what food I can eat, very importantly now, what I choose to put in my body. So may we take this journey individually and collectively to really ask, what, what is it to be human? What, what kind of world do we want to live in? And, and as you said, that might be stepping out of this current society. And I don't want to feed any society that that has these current conditions of, of how to live really. And I see it becoming more totalitarianism. So yeah, let, let's potentially step out and just let this system kind of fall apart as we step into a new story. Well, thank you for listening. I was, uh, I'm glad that I could uh, bring my story here. Thanks very much for listening. If this episode moved you in any way and you'd like to share or if you'd like to request a guest that has deeply inspired you, then I'd love to hear from you at moversandshakerspod at gmail.com. This episode and the lovely music um, was produced and edited by Ivan Lupaka, who you can also follow at Ivan the DJ on Instagram and social media. Thanks. Take care.